Welcome to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Dr. Robert Bullard. I see this as a moment in time to say, okay, we're going to have to fight these converging threats simultaneously. To see this clearly articulated, it's like it's about time. Robert Bullard is a transformational figure in the environmental justice movement. Trained as a sociologist, he was one of the first Americans to name and begin to quantify the concept of environmental racism. He's devoted much of his life to documenting how racism puts black people and other people of color at higher risk from pollution, natural disasters, and other environmental threats, while also depriving many people of their basic rights to clean water, clean air, and other environmental benefits. Currently, Dr. Bullard is a distinguished professor at Texas Southern University in Houston, but his work has always extended far beyond the academy. He co-founded the National Black Environmental Justice Network, the HBCU Climate Change Consortium, and he's written and edited 18 books, including Dumping in Dixie, Race, Class, and Environmental Quality, which is considered required reading in many college classrooms. His contributions to environmental thought have been recognized by major organizations such as Newsweek and the National Wildlife Federation. In 2013, Dr. Bullard became the first African-American to win the John Muir Award from the Sierra Club. The next year, that organization created an award named after Dr. Bullard to celebrate achievements in environmental justice. And as we'll hear, the fact that national conservation organizations like the Sierra Club have begun to see racial justice as intrinsic to their mission is in large part because of Robert Bullard's life and work. I spoke with Dr. Bullard in early July 2020, in the middle of the summer surge of COVID-19. Dr. Bullard, thank you so much for joining me today on Threshold Conversations. My pleasure. Where, where are you in the world today as we're speaking? I'm in Houston, Texas, uh, ground zero uh, and the hotspot for COVID-19. Uh, we are experiencing uh, a tremendous surge uh, and the number of hospitalizations and deaths, and uh, it's frightening. Yeah. It's, um, it's ironic that Houston has the world's largest uh, medical center. Uh, the Texas Medical Center is the largest in the world. And we are being uh, swamped right now with uh, illnesses that are, that are coming in and showing up and uh, people that are needing uh, help uh, and health care. Well, I hope you stay safe, and um, I want to dive more into COVID-19 and and how it is intersecting with so many other issues um, in just a bit. But um, if you don't mind, I'd like to to go back uh, to your childhood for a minute. And um, my understanding is you grew up in a small town in southern Alabama. Is that right? Yeah, I I grew up in a little town, uh, Elba, Alabama, right on the southern part of the state, uh, just not that far from Florida, and uh, grew up in a time when everything was segregated. And uh, Jim Crow put a, uh, a racial footprint on education, housing, employment, um, voting, uh, even access to something as simple as uh, having a grocery store, paved streets. And so, you know, um, I saw all of that uh, growing up. Mm. What was your experience with this thing that we've come to call the environment as a kid? Did you spend a lot of time outside, and what was your connection with the outdoors like? Well, you know, I, um, I, as I said, I grew up in a small town, and it meant that we 
uh, spent a lot of time outside and it was not uh, something that uh, you thought about. You know, my father uh, hunted and fished and, uh, and I would go along with him. And so the nature was something that was part of our life. My mother had a garden and my grandmother had, uh, had uh, chickens and, and we grew, you know, vegetables and everything. And so it was a matter of, of, uh, of being very close to uh, nature, but it was not something that we thought about or, or just, you know, join a group to, to be part of. Because in, in, in that period of time, you know, Alabama was uh, very segregated and many of the environmental groups that operated in the, in the state operated as, uh, as white clubs and integration and, and mixing was uh, not something that was uh, commonplace. So, so even though we cared about, you know, having clean water where we took the fish out of the rivers or the streams, uh, we cared about uh, having clean air and playing outside. You spend most of your time as a kid, you're outside most of, most of the inside. As a matter of fact, we were kicked outside. Even when it was 90 degrees outside, you know, go outside and play. You know, we didn't, weren't thinking about playing games, sitting on the couch with a, you know, with an iPad or, or a phone. That was not available then. So it was, it was you, you, were, you were very close to nature and you were very close to things that, that, that meant something in your life. In terms of as a kid, you know, we collected uh, um, uh, Coke bottles or soda bottles and, uh, and got, you know, a penny for them and took them back. That was recycling. We didn't know anything about recycling. I mean, it was part of what you do. It was just you make a, a few dollars and, and doing those kinds of things. Uh, it was not until later that, that uh, the environment as, a, as an institution and a structure and a relationship uh, in terms of a movement uh, came into my life. But, but being aware of the physical environment was always the case. You, you went on to graduate from Alabama A&M where you studied government and then you served in the Marine Corps. After that, you began to study sociology. And I'm just so curious about the connection between these different things, government, Marine Corps, sociology. How did you get there? Well, you know, I went to uh, Alabama A&M University, which is a historically black college university. And during that period of time from 1964 to 1968 was very turbulent uh, times in terms of civil rights. And uh, graduated from college, I, uh, my first job was in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, teaching at a high school. And I taught from August until uh, November. Then I got drafted in 1968 and spent two years in the Marine Corps. Hoorah! Um, but I always knew I wanted to be a, a college professor. And my parents, uh, they valued uh, education. That was a, a great uh, a boost for me in understanding that education can take you to uh, places that you never uh, thought you could go. Were your parents teachers or was one of them a teacher? No, no. My, 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 uh, both my parents finished high school but uh, they never went to college or uh, my, my uh, mother uh, was a housewife and she took care of the kids and my dad uh, was a worker. He was a, a blue collar worker and he, and he was a hard worker. He'd always say, boy, if you uh, always make sure you have two jobs and a hustle. <laughs> he said, make you say you have one job, if you get fired from that job, what you got? You got that other second job. And if you get fired from that second job, you got what? Your hustle. So my dad worked, you know, two jobs and he was very uh, uh, entrepreneurial and he basically took care of the family and my parents uh, um, uh, made sure that that we 
uh, took advantage of opportunities. As I said, I went to all black elementary school, all black middle school, all black high school, all black uh, uh, undergraduate college. But we had very good teachers and uh, they inspired us and they challenged us to do our very best and to excel. We were never trying to be equal. We were trying to be better. We were trying to be the best that we could, uh, that we could be. Um, and it, uh, that, that kind of uh, hard work and that, that, that work ethic, uh, it kind of like was drilled and, uh, and it's still with me right now. Yeah, well, and speaking of that work ethic, you went on and earned your PhD in sociology from Iowa State University while your wife was earning her law degree from Drake University. And then eventually you, you moved to Houston, and that's where you both became involved in an issue that really kind of changed the course of your lives, it seems like. And it started with a woman named Margaret Bean. Who was Margaret Bean, and what did she do that ended up affecting your life? Well, Margaret Bean was uh, one of the residents who lived in Northwood Manor, which is a subdivision in northeast Houston. And uh, she was part of a group of residents that, uh, that approached my uh, wife to file a lawsuit on their behalf fight this uh, sanitary landfill permit that was being uh, proposed for this predominantly black middle-class suburban community in Houston. Now, I just gave you all the characteristics of the neighborhood, and this is, would not be an, uh, a likely place to put a, a landfill. I'm sorry, sanitary landfill, and we know there's nothing sanitary about where garbage is dumped. And so the, the, so, so the idea was, was to challenge this landfill that was going in this uh, black middle-class suburban neighborhood, uh, nothing out there except trees, housing, ho houses, single-family homes, and black people. And so uh, my wife took the case, and one day she came home, and uh, uh, she said, uh, Bob, I just, uh, I just sued the state of Texas. Uh, I worked uh, for a state university, so technically she sued my employer. And I said, you did what? She said, yeah, I sued the state of Texas, and I need somebody to help me uh, find out where all the landfills are and put it on a map so I can go into court in 10 days. And I said, you need a sociologist. She said, that's what you are, right? I said, yeah, but. I said, that's a lot of work. I said, so she said, uh, you're it. You're all I got. <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> you're all I got. And so that's how I got drafted. And I, and I had 10 students in my research methods class at Texas Southern University, where I am now. So I had to design a project uh, with my students, and we collected the data. We had to find the data, archival data, going to the library, uh, getting data from uh, the city, the county, the state. It was a laborious process because it was nothing was computerized, and it was a fact that that here are black uh, uh, black people trying to get information from the city, the county, and the state that they were reluctant to give it to you, and so we had to basically uh, get the information any way that we could, and we did. And, and, and that study that I did was in 1979, the Houston Waste Study, uh, Solid Waste Study and, and the Black Community. Uh, what we found was astonishing, amazing. It was not something that I anticipated, but what we found is from the 30s and up until 1978, five out of five of the city-owned landfills, that's 100%, were located in Black neighborhoods. Six out of eight of the city-owned incinerators were in Black neighborhoods. And three out of four of the privately-owned landfills in Houston located in black neighborhoods. So from the 30s up until 1978, 82% of all the garbage, solid waste dumped in Houston was dumped in black neighborhoods. 
even though blacks only made up 25% of the population. Now, for me, that was an aha moment. Wow, aha. Uh, we, we, we got the data, we got the statistics, we got the numbers. How can you get 82% of anything in one place unless somebody is deciding to put it there? Dean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation was the first lawsuit in the United States to challenge environmental racism using civil rights law. And although you weren't able to win that case, my understanding is it really carved a path in terms of connecting these two things, civil rights and, and environmental issues. We lost in court, but we won the battle when it comes to challenging environmental racism and discrimination and to let people understand that this is not a random act. These are acts of, of uh, willful uh, and, and on purpose to put things in black neighborhoods, in communities of color, uh, and say, well, that's the best place you should go. Now, that, is, that was racism then in 1979, and it's racism now. When communities of color and poor communities get overburdened with pollution and health-threatening uh, kinds of operations. And uh, we, we could not, in 1979, up until 1985, we could not get a single environmental group, a white group, uh, to work with us on this environmental issue. When we, when we approached them about this case and I gave them the, the statistics, um, we got back, well, yeah, that's, isn't that where the dumps are supposed to be? Um, and, and of course we were shocked. Again, these were environmentalists uh, who basically didn't work on race. They, did, they didn't work on justice. They basically worked on, quote, the environment. We even approached the, the national um, civil rights organizations, and uh, they gave us the same kind of uh, argument that we don't work on environment. We work on housing discrimination, work on employment discrimination, we work on voting. And so it took 25 years for the environmental, the white environmental uh, community, and it took the same 25 years for the black civil rights community to understand that breathing uh, is civil rights and breathing is environmental justice. And so that's the trajectory and the years and the decades that it took to get people to understand how uh, the environment is everything. It's where we live, work, play, worship, learn, as well as the physical and natural world. And that the environment should be healthy and sustainable for, for everybody, not just people who have money and, and power. That was the realization that, that I came to after the Bean case. When you went to the, the white-led uh, environmental organizations to tell them about what was happening in Houston, um, what specifically did they say? It's hard, it's hard to, for me to wrap my mind around how that could not have clicked into, we need to be involved in this. So I, like, what, what was the line they were giving you? Well, again, we go back in history, uh, and they just didn't see or understand the connection between racial justice and the siting of a landfill and incinerators and garbage dumps as something that was environmental. They saw that as a social issue. And, and that's what they told me. Uh, we don't work on social issues. And so in a lot of the environmental, white environmental groups saw the issues that black people and people of color were raising as social issues. And our, our position was breathing is not social. Breathing is natural. Breathing is something that you have to do. You can't decide next Wednesday that I'm not going to breathe. Fighting for clean water and making sure that that, that water is clean and not uh, contaminated with lead or making sure that lead paint in houses uh, are not 
you know, poisoning our children. These are not social issues, but the groups themselves saw this as social because the environmental movement during that period of time was very segregated. Their boards were white, their staffs were white, their agendas were white. And again, the white environmentalists basically reflected the larger society. The larger society did not see dumping poison on black people as a major issue since most Americans were not getting poison dumped on them. And so they never saw it. And so out of sight, out of mind, you're not, you're, you're not members of my organization. Uh, you don't write checks to my organizations. Uh, and, and therefore, um, uh, what you're working on is not part of what we see as our priority. Now, some of that exists today in 2020. And so we have not unpeeled um, all of that from the history of the uh, conservation and, and environmental movement in this country, in the United States, because a lot of the birth of a lot of their conservation and environmentalism came out of racism in terms of uh, kicking native indigenous people off the land, taking the land and for the sake of, well, we're preserving it and all this. And, and, and the, the way that they operated in terms of who could be members and, and in terms of their, their priorities, in terms of their work. I mean, so, so uh, again, we're talking about a society that was, that was very uh, separate and apart, was segregated. Our society was very racist. And so America was segregated and so was pollution. And when I would explain to that to, to, to a lot of the groups, I didn't have that saying then because I didn't have all the data. I had the data on Houston. And, I, and, and, and we've approached uh, the groups as saying, this could be a, test, a major test case. We could use you know, major environmental groups. We could use major lawyers to work on this stuff with us. We could use health professionals. And they said no. And again, um, it was too soon to raise this with white group, but it was not too soon for black folks to understand no, this is what's been happening to us all along. We always get the free rays run through our neighborhoods. We always get the landfills and the incineraries. We always get, you know, uh, our neighborhoods built in the floodplains. Over the years, I've documented a lot of that stuff. And we've, you know, dump, documented in Dumping in Dixie, documented in, the, you know, the other 18 books that I've written showing the connection between housing segregation, housing discrimination, land use planning, um, the issues of um, transportation, all these things are connected. But I can, you know, for the first, I'd say the first 10 years I was working on this stuff, I could count the number of people on one hand and have, you know, fingers left over who were doing this in a way that was working toward eradicating environmental racism. We'll have more with Dr. Robert Bullard after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and this is the voice of Dr. Robert Bullard from a 1993 series called Earthkeeping, Toxic Racism, which was produced by WGBH in Boston. The whole environmental justice movement as a movement really took off in Warren County because this was a, a case study where people basically drew a line in the dirt and said no more. For nearly four years, the residents of Warren County have been protesting the state of North Carolina's plan to transport PCB-contaminated soil to a landfill in their community. 
Fans of Science Friday might recognize the voice of Ira Flato there as the narrator. He and Dr. Bullard were recounting the events of the late 1970s and early 80s in Warren County, North Carolina. Warren County was one of the poorest counties in the state at that time, an agricultural area with a predominantly African-American population. When a landfill for soil that had been contaminated with harmful chemicals was cited in the county, the residents rose up in protest, and the term environmental racism began to enter the national discourse. That was the word environment. This is environmental racism. You're dumping all this poison on black people. This is environmental racism. That was the 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 term that uh, uh, almost like a, a shot uh, that was sent around the world. And 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 what we have to do is to convince even today convince people that environmental racism is real. Just like people don't believe climate change is real, uh, that is happening. Uh, there's people still believe. Well, the reason why they're putting the putting the landfill over there, a re- reason why they. Uh, running the pipeline through this uh, reservation or this neighborhood is because the land is cheap. I mean, they don't, they are excuses and they, they're always um, uh, ration, trying to rationalize uh, other reasons, trying to say, well, oh, you know, it's just poverty. It's just, you know, uh, people don't vote. No, race is the most potent factor that determines who gets dumped on and where facilities are cited and, and which, communities get get uh, things that make them healthy versus things that make them unhealthy. And so the idea that that this is not a justice issue uh, is is pretty unbelievable if you look at the facts. Hmm. And it was back in the 1980s with that Warren County conflict that that whole idea kind of started to take hold. And it seems like the organizing around that was part of what led to the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in 1991. Is that right? Let me say, before the summit, people were were somewhat uh, skeptical of whether or not people of color could, number one, pull off a summit, and number two, whether or not environment was something of interest to people of color. See, because there is this whole myth, well, people of color are not concerned about the environment. Black people are not environmentalists. And, well, of course, we're not a member of these white organizations. Uh, Of course, we didn't write checks to these white groups. And, of course, in terms of of our agendas, our agendas was more dealing with social justice and dealing with racial justice, dealing with economic justice, agendas that were were, um, foreign to the environmental uh, uh, organizations and the conservation organizations that were primarily white. And we had white sociologists that called themselves environmental sociologists that were doing surveys. And a lot of that surveys asked the questions that somehow um, uh, uh, kept people of color who worked on these justice issues and these civil rights issues defined us out of being, quote, an environmentalist. And so you ask, if you ask the question, uh, uh, have you contributed to an environmental group, are you a member of this environmental group? And if you say no, then then if you say two, uh, one out of two or two out of two, then you're not environmentalist. I mean, it's like whoa, hell no, I'm not a member of these groups because I, you know, <laughs> they're not dealing with issues I, that I'm really concerned about, and 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 they have a history of racism. So why would I join something that's racist? And so so a lot of our uh, uh, surveys early on. Uh, contributed to the myth that people of color and poor people are not concerned about the environment. 
if you worked it another way, you ask the question, um, uh, are you aware of environmental issue near you? And if you ask that question to white people and you ask that question to black people, they'll say, yes, I know where the damn landfill is. I know where the incinerator is. I know where the petrochemical plant. I know where the refinery. And you start naming all those things. Are you concerned about water quality and concerned about you know the river? Do you fish? Do you catch the fish? Are you an angler? They say, no, I'm not an angler. Do you catch and release? No, I don't catch and release. I catch and clean and eat. So the idea of how we define a whole population out of environmentalism and how we define environmentalism and how we define the environment. The environmental justice movement redefined what the environment is. The environment is everything. As I said, where we live, work, play, worship, learn, as well as the physical and natural world. That, so, that, so when we connect the, the neighborhoods and the jobs and, the, and all those other things together that were left out by the conservation and environmental groups, you can see how our movement really started to attract the most, um, I guess, the groups that have been hit the hardest by pollution and environmental degradation and, and being left out. And, and tell me about the People of Color Environmental Groups Directory, which you created, because that seems like one of the ways you were pushing back against that. When we developed the, in 1992 uh, the Environmental Groups Directory, uh, there were some folks who said to us, you can't find no black and brown, native, uh, Asian, Pacific Islander uh, environmental groups in this country. And I, I challenged them. I said, I can. Because I know some folks who are working on this. They may not have environment in their name, but they work on issues around lead poisoning. They work on issues around landfills. They work on issues around transportation issues. You have all these groups all over the country. We found groups in 48 states. And it's not by accident that 75% of the people of color and indigenous organizations that we found were led by women, women of color. And, and that was curious to me because, and I asked, I said, why is it that 75% of our people of color and indigenous organizations are led by women? And, and I got back is that, that women of color are concerned about family, home and community. And it's intergenerational. These little old grandmothers in tennis shoes, take no prisoner, tough as nails, Marine Corps type. I mean, they are adamant about protecting their grandchildren. And, they, and these little old retired school teachers, they are adamant about, about children and, and, and those populations that are most vulnerable to pollution. That has transferred into our movement for racial justice, who are out there fighting who are out there leading. Whereas if you look at the traditional mainstream environmental and conservation groups, they're led by white men. And so, so, so it's just the opposite of environmental justice. Environmental justice also uh, is racial justice, economic justice, gender justice, you know, eliminating that, that, that racism and that sexism. Now we have not done that in our environmental justice movement. We still have it. But we have come a long ways, and uh, I think our environmental justice framing and our environmental justice lens that, uh, that we use, racial justice, gender justice, uh, economic justice, um, uh, can be very useful uh, for the mainstream and the green groups and all those other groups that are, that are working on these issues and, uh, and talk about inclusion. And, and we say uh, inclusion and racial justice 
starts at home. You can have a great racial justice statement, Green Group, but if, but if you are not practicing that at home, the statement is just the statement. It's just a baby step. It starts at home. And that's what we're saying. Mm-hmm. And, and can we talk about some of the impacts of living in close proximity to, uh, to environmental hazards? I mean, one of the definitions that I, I read that you had written about what environmental justice is, is some communities getting more than their fair share of the bad stuff. Um, so what happens if you are um, living next to some of the bad stuff? Um, what, what are some of the ways that environmental justice actually impacts people's lives? Well, if you look at the fact that in America, all communities are not created equal. Uh, there are some that are more equal than others. And if you have um, uh, happen to live in a community that's uh, physically located on the wrong side of the tracks, the river, the, the canal, or the, or the levee, um, or you live in an area that has been unofficially zoned for pollution, then you receive less protection. You're being, you, you receive over, you're overpolluted. Uh, you, and, and what happens is, uh, is the fact that these, uh, the results um, uh, show up in, in health outcomes. And, and so you talk about communities that have historically been dumped on by various kinds of environmental uh, degradation. You can see that elevated asthma rates um, and I'm talking before COVID, African-American uh, adults are three to four times more likely to be hospitalized or die from asthma. And African-American children are 10 times more likely to die from asthma than white children. And so we start comparing who lives where. Uh, for example, um, in, in 2007, if you look at the clustering of toxic waste facilities, it's almost seven out of every 10 person who lives within a two-mile radius of the nation's most dangerous hazardous waste facilities are people of color. People of color make up only about 40% of the U.S. population, so we're overpolluted. Uh, and it's not, a, it's not a poverty thing. Uh, it's, it can't be reduced just to oh, low-income families and, and low-property uh, low values. Middle-income African-Americans who make fifty dollars to $60,000 a year are more likely to live in neighborhoods that are more polluted than whites who make $10,000. Yes. Why is that the case? It's easier for a low-income white family to leave a polluted neighborhood and go to a neighborhood that's not polluted than it is for a middle-income black person to leave that polluted neighborhood because of housing discrimination, because of residential segregation. And so you get this, this uh, piling on, and it ends up in high asthma rates. It ends up in high diabetes rates. Uh, uh, it ends up in high um, terms of, of strokes and heart disease, and you end up having elevated health disparities in those neighborhoods that you have a saturation of pollution. We call those sacrifice, environmental sacrifice zones. And what we say is that the way the system is designed, it's designed to poison, uh, pollute, and kill people of color. Whether intended or unintended, the results end up uh, having uh, differential impacts on children and differential impacts on women, particularly women of childbearing age. That's why it is so um, cruel to not address environmental racism when we see it and, and when we can do something about it and not just um, uh, kind of poo-poo it or, or just you know, kind of like get, say, oh, that's not real. That's, you're just making that up. The environment affects everybody in the same way. That's what we got in 1979. 
And, and, and now some people are saying, well, uh, climate change is affecting everybody the same way. No, it's not. And what we say is that climate change and climate policy, it's about more than parts per million and more than greenhouse gases. It's about justice, climate justice. It's about racial justice. It's about economic justice. It's about gender justice. All these things are converging into one movement for racial justice and dismantling systemic racism and this whole ideology of white supremacies. Those are the kinds of things that we are redefining how our environmentalism is practiced and how it's being presented. And it's not being presented as it was in 1979, that that's not our issue. We don't work on social issues. And again, we're saying, you know, we know there's no white air, there's no Hispanic air, there's no that there's no native indigenous people's air, there's air. And so when we talk about clean air, when we make the air clean for, the, for our most vulnerable population, we provide better quality of air for everybody. When we place our most vulnerable communities and population at risk, we place everybody at risk. Now we know that for a fact. And I feel like this moment, this year, is giving us so many examples of that. Everything from, you know, COVID-19, which is dramatically uh, affecting people of color in, in dramatically disproportionate numbers. And then there seems to be maybe that we're at some kind of tipping point where, um, where the idea that environmental justice is some kind of subcategory of the environmental movement as a whole is 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 kind of it seems to me fading away in that that we're getting it that it's it's one thing and yet um i I just have to read you a paragraph that i found on the department of energy's office of legacy management website um it's, re- it's referring to the argument about waste siting decisions. So it says, quote, critics to studies have presented arguments supporting different conclusions for waste siting decisions. Some argue that the cost of land and favorable business climates are greater predictors of waste siting decisions, meaning than race. Others have argued that minority and low income residents have moved into neighborhoods hosting a waste facility due to the cheap cost of land. Regardless to the reason, a clear feeling in many minority communities is that they have been targeted for unwanted land uses and have little, if any, power to remedy their dilemma. Correct or incorrect, this is the position from which many environmental justice activists make their environmental justice decisions. So this is on the government website. And I just... I'm sorry to provoke you, but I also want to give you a chance to respond to that. What What is your response to that? My response to that is that is just total bullshit that, that needs to come down because we have studies after studies after studies showing that race is still the most potent factor. And uh, there are, it's not a matter of opinion. I mean, we have empirical evidence to show you exactly where these facilities are located. And as a matter of fact, there's study after study after study. That that particular paragraph probably uh, predates uh, many of these studies. And it's almost like saying, oh, we're in 1979. The facts are, are, are overwhelming. And when you start tracking the kinds of data, t- toxic release inventory facilities, again, and looking at who lives where, uh, the data is overwhelming. Uh, in terms of race is the best predictor. And just to pick apart that point, um, uh, so, yes, yeah, some people move around 
facilities in terms of people of color, but you have to dissect that. And if you look at the, the, the systemic racism involved in housing patterns and location of facilities, in many cases, houses that may be built and are affordable um, are located in those areas and they are pretty much designed for and built for people of color. So what's driving it is racism. So let's be very clear. And as I gave you the data before, in terms of uh, black people who make 50 to, uh, to $60,000 versus white people who make $10,000, the driver behind that disparity um, is not poverty. The, the driver is racism. A, a, a black person making $60,000 should be able to move in a, a neighborhood that's, that's um, of quality. We have study after study after study that shows that race is embedded in all of those decision making. So, so that, that paragraph is, um, is like the paragraph left in the constitution of, of these southern states that, that still has language about separation of the races and Jim Crow. So that's one of those uh, residuals of the past and uh, uh, is there, but it has no merit. There's nothing to back it up. Yeah, I I probably shouldn't have been, but I was pretty was pretty shocked, honestly, to come across that and just think. I mean, it just um, to to reduce the whole question of environmental justice to some people feel this way, as opposed to that there are facts that we're dealing with. Um, it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, yeah, but but not not uh, but not unusual. The the idea that that environmental justice is a feeling. Uh, that's that's like the folks who don't believe in climate change. That climate change is a belief. It's not a belief, it's science. And it's real, what's happening is real. It's like saying, I don't believe in gravity. Not believing gravity has nothing to do with the law of gravity. You know, if, if you climb a 40 story building and jump out and say, I don't believe in gravity, your belief has nothing to do with gravity kicking in and you hitting the ground, splat. So, so belief, um, it has nothing to do with uh, what we're talking about. We, and again, uh, we could care less if somebody believed that, uh, that environmental racism uh, was real. We know it's we know it's happening. We know climate change is happening right now, and, and 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 communities are feeling the pain right now. And we know which communities are feeling the pain. This is not theory. Uh, and so so yeah, so that's how we we don't spend a lot of time arguing with those people because we if we did we could waste a lot of time and energy um, and, uh, um, trying to debate that. And we don't. There's some things we don't debate. Uh, we don't debate. Um, uh, whether or not slavery was evil, we don't debate whether or not the, the Holocaust was, is, was, is real. We don't debate those things. They, those are things that we know uh, are real and, 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 and not to spend any time uh, and energy uh, trying to go back and forth and give equal time. Uh, no. Yeah, by putting them in the category of something that's debatable, yes. you're elevating them. And yes, you are. Yeah. You are. <laughs> well, I know that we, I know we need to wrap up here, but I, I just have to ask you, um, what gives you hope? What gives you energy and motivation to keep working here? Well, you know, what gives me hope is is the fact that um, the issues around justice now uh, have merged, and and uh, we have in a generational. Uh, mobilization around justice. And for me to see the, the whole issue around uh, environment, race, and justice come from uh, nothing, uh, no acknowledgement except for the people who are fighting it on the ground to having it recognized globally. 
and to see uh, young people, even young people who are not even old enough to vote, uh, out there uh, protesting and voicing uh, their opinions vehemently opposed to injustice, racial injustice and, and uh, social injustice and, and, and the racism, systemic racism. I see this as a moment in time uh, to say, okay, we're gonna have to fight these converging threats simultaneously. And even if your area and your issue and your expertise was not criminal justice reform, I Can't Breathe resonates across environment. It resonates across the issue because if we can't breathe, then, then uh, that's a, a threat to our humanity, whether it's climate change or whether these other threats. To see this clearly articulated, it's like it's about time and that you see uh, all these folks out there saying, now is the time. That to me sends a message of urgency, the urgency of now, right now, and not 20 years from now, not 40 years from now, but right now, that we need to, to make some transformative changes in our society to, to eradicate and dismantle this system that has created so much inequality and so many disparities on so many levels. And I think the, that the fact that, that so many people recognize this today, that it's not, you know, uh, it's not now being defined as a fringe. We're talking majority. <laughs> We're talking the majority of the population now saying, you know, the country is out of control. So how we get control back is to focus on these issues and make racial justice a priority in all of the things that we do. Because racism was stamped in America's DNA from the very beginning. And so in order for us to address it, we have to acknowledge it and then we have to work toward um, dismantling that. I think we're, we're in a wave where, where we're gonna get some action. We're gonna demand some action and we're gonna demand not baby steps, but giant steps to get this change. I am, as I said, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm, I'm optimistic, but I know we must marry the research, the findings, the data, and follow the science. We also have to marry that with action, and, 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 um, and action that is uh, happening uh, not just in one isolated community, but all across this country, and I see that happening. You go to these international meetings or global meetings, environmental justice is something that people are talking about no matter where they are, they're talking about environmental justice. They're talking about climate justice, uh, no, no matter where. So, so I, I think this is uh, contagious uh, in a good way in terms of wanting to do right. And uh, as Dr. King said, uh, the time is right to always do the right thing. This is the right time to do the right thing. And uh, as I said, and I believe that uh, uh, from the bottom and the depths of my heart, I believe that. Well, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to talk with you today. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. This episode of Threshold Conversations was funded by the Park Foundation, Montana Public Radio, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. We're also funded by contributions from our listeners. Join our community at thresholdpodcast.org slash donate. 
The Threshold team includes Angela Swatek, Talia Farnsworth, Eva Kalea, Nick Mott, and Casey Simpson, with help from Caroline Kurtz, Dan Carreno, Hannah Carey, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, and Matt Hurley. Our music is by Travis Yost.